Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court has done the unthinkable, repealing the landmark Roe v. Wade decision and stripping Americans of a fundamental right, abortion access. I'm Kate Kelly, the co-host of the podcast Ordinary Equality, alongside Jamia Wilson. On the newest season of Ordinary Equality, we ask, what now? What does resisting bans and seeking care look like in a world without federal protection of abortion access? How can we build community and support the most vulnerable? How are abortion providers in states where abortion was already severely restricted working around the system? Each episode will feature one story around one theme, often in one state, zooming in rather than zooming out. Tune in to Ordinary Equality wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. This is a special episode of the podcast. As you probably know, my book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, came out this week. Uh, it is a deeply personal story uh, that I've put out into the world, and it would seem odd if I didn't talk about it on this podcast in a deeply personal way. And there's no better way to do that uh, than with my two very good friends, Grace and Robbie, who actually read early drafts of the book. And so we're going to have a conversation about the book starting right now. So I would actually really love to start with the title of the book itself. So the book is entitled Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. And I want to emphasize the a soldier's memoir portion of that. So could you talk about why self-identifying as a soldier first and foremost, was important to you? Uh, yeah, because that's how I see myself, right? I mean, that's that's how I've ever since really a few months or maybe about a year into uh, my time in the Army, which is to say my time training in ROTC and in the Guard, uh, I, I, I went at that time from seeing myself as like a law student or like a former debater slash baseball player, college student, whatever the heck I was, to just seeing myself as a soldier who was also in law school and then later as a soldier who was also practicing law or then for a while as a soldier period because I was deployed or on active duty. And then it was, oh, I'm a soldier who is running for office. I'm a soldier, you know, and so that is carried through my whole life. And then as I thought about the book that I wanted to write, I don't read political memoirs hardly ever. Like when a close friend writes one, uh, you know, I'll read it. Um, but and, and Grace, I know this is true for you too, because you told me, I they're not interesting. Political memoirs are not interesting. I didn't want to write a political memoir because a political memoir is like, 
here's how I'm the hero of this story. And here's how everything kind of seems to work out where I enter the tale as the hero repeatedly. It just isn't interesting to me. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to tell a story, uh, to tell my story in a way that people, whether they were combat veterans or not, could relate to it. So that's why the book has, you know, the first chapter is me going into the army. The second chapter is me in Afghanistan. And then after that, the rest of it is me dealing with a psychological disorder while I happen to be pursuing the presidency, but it's not about those things. Well, I want to get now into the structural elements of the book, because to your point, yes, you only spend a chapter in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan certainly does not leave the narrative. Right. And so it's not really, I would say, chronological in how it's portrayed. So I want to know how you thought about crafting a story that was more woven as opposed to more linear and why you made that choice. Well, there were two challenges there, right? The first was that I wanted the reader to understand what it's like to have PTSD. Uh, and that meant that as I went through the periods of the story, which is the first two thirds of the book before I got treatment, I, I gave myself the challenge of not allowing myself to use the language that I gained in therapy to describe what I was going through, to only allow myself as the narrator at that, at that moment in the book to have available the language that I had available at the time. So whereas toward the end of the book, I'm explaining things as I learn them to be as hypervigilance, as you know, just the reason I was having nightmares, that kind of thing. The term PTSD doesn't really even enter the book for several chapters because early on I'm explaining, you know, I was having trouble in a crowd. I felt like I was in danger, but I'm not explaining why because I didn't know then. So that's that's part of it. But then the other part is if you're going to understand what it was like to go through what I went through, then we're going to go back to Afghanistan for moments at a time. For instance, when I met my watch party for secretary of state and instead of feeling like a normal level of anxiety about, you know, the election results, I'm feeling a complete lack of control because I had my brain had learned in Afghanistan that I had to control every situation. And if I had no control, then I might die. And so I'm relating to the reader that while everybody else is in the room watching Obama give his victory speech and waiting on my election results, I'm, you know, in a vehicle in Afghanistan, and I'm seeing a little boy who I almost shot or not, you know, and, and so it's not flashbacks per se. What I had was more like re-experiencing, but I, instead of just explaining that to you, I just wanted the reader to go through that with me on that journey. And something you alluded to earlier is that I, um, I am not a fan of memoirs as a genre, and I did make that known to you. However, your book takes another very creative turn and approach in its structure and that you hear from Diana in the first person. I want to know how you two came to that decision to include her first person perspective. And if going into the writing process, you were already aware of everything she would ultimately end up sharing in the book. Not all of it. Yeah, that was really interesting that. So for context, uh, in, in I think pretty much every chapter, there's at least a passage or two where Diana comes in for a page or two uh, and, and gives her perspective on what was happening at that, at that time. Diana jokingly refers to her contributions to the book as her rebuttals. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, there are parts where, you know, I, the narrator, the narrator in the moment in relating things one way, for instance, when I'm in Afghanistan and I'm explaining how great it is that over the course of my deployment, we seem not to have had a single argument that every phone call home has just gone so 
so great and allowed me to concentrate on what I'm doing. And then Diana comes in to tell you that actually we were disagreeing all the time on the phone, but she had heard from me before I left that sometimes when soldiers are distracted by stuff at home, they lose their focus and they can get hurt. So she was adamant about never disagreeing with me and kept a journal about all the ways in which she was upset with me. And that sort of boiled over much later, right? So a lot of the time it's like, I'm thinking one thing and I relay it in the first person. And then she comes in. There's, I think one passage that starts out with her saying, of course, that didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> so the reason that we wanted to do that was twofold. One, not everybody is interested in reading about the experience of somebody who got trauma from combat. Not everybody is interested in reading about somebody who was going through all of these symptoms while they were in politics. But we want as many people as possible to be able to relate to this so that it can and not to be, you know, over the top, but I think this is real, save as many lives as possible. And so as a result, it was important for there to be more than just me as the narrator, right? Because going back to why you're not a big fan of memoirs and why I'm not a fan of political memoirs, if the entire story is coming from the person who it's about, you know, it's kind of hard to to take that seriously all the time, right? And and so I thought it was important for that reason, but also as part of that, if I'm relating the story to you in terms of what I was feeling and thinking at the time, almost in the present sense, as if I'm telling you at that at that time, well, there's a part of you that might find that hard to relate to if you've never had trauma. So it's really helpful to have an additional narrator who was a witness to all of it, who can give context to what they were seeing in their husband changing at that time. That's the first reason. The second reason is PTSD doesn't just affect the person with PTSD. As we found out, Diana ended up with secondary PTSD. She ended up with almost all of my symptoms, despite not having the underlying trauma, just from living with me over all those years, from being woken up by my night terrors in the middle of the night, having to be the one who had to sleep light enough to shake me awake so that I would be, you know, so that I could escape uh, what was going on in my subconscious and then hear about it while she's half awake, right? Or half asleep, really. And then that got into her, all my hypervigilant, you know, uh, need to secure everything all the time in the house, my m feeling as if we were in danger and making it so eventually she felt like we were in danger. She ended up sharing and all that. And that's the thing that we didn't know about. Even after I'd started getting treatment for PTSD, it took my therapist to say, I think Diana should get therapy too. And so just the way I, I want more people to understand what this feels like so they can spot it in themselves or others, I also want people to know what it's like to be so close to somebody going through this and to know that they might need help too. It paints a much fuller picture of your experience. And it also puts a lot of cracks into your perspective that you're portraying, which is very in the moment as you move through the book, which I think is really compelling. So was it in the practical sense of how you then went about crafting this narrative? Did you like write a draft and then Diana was like, oh, I got something to say about that? Or was it much more of a collaborative she was like, here are key moments for me that like, I, I would hope we build to where I could contribute or express my point of view. It started as a draft that I wrote. Uh, and as I was, as I was writing it, I was telling her about it and I was occasionally reading her portions of it. Uh, and then she started asking me, and I'm going to say this and it's going to make people feel like the book is particularly haunting. The book is not, it's the only people who have read the book who have had a really hard time with the emotionality of the book are like us and my parents and like our really, really, really close friends who went through all that with us and felt like they wish they had been able to help. Right. But, but that's it. 
And so I want to say that as like, uh, there's not, it's, I don't want people to be scared away by it, but because it was our experience and because my retelling of it was emotional and raw and it took her a few weeks to be able, once I had finished like half the, the draft to really sit down and go through it because that was our plan was for her to go through it and to add her contributions. And I had like left spaces where it was like, maybe this would be a good place for you. She ignored most of those and put them in different places, but she, she had started saying to me, like, you can't read me parts of this before bed. It's too upsetting. And then she started uh, going through it. And like, she had to go pretty slowly because it was really hard for her to read. And then once she did, she went through and she made her contributions and they made it so much better. And then I, and then I went through, finished the draft. And the idea was she was going to go through and do the rest of her contributions, but her being Diana and being a New York Times bestselling author and an incredible storyteller who the whole time in my professional life that I've been giving speeches, she's made all of them better by listening to them and being like, that doesn't make any sense there. You should put this here. She, instead of just adding her contributions, she ended up going through and being like, this should, you should rearrange this, this should work this way. And ended up helping me pull 10,000 words out of the book that I of course thought were wonderful. And she convinced me didn't necessarily serve the purpose of the book and made it a hundred times better. It can be hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you have high interest debt, and sometimes it can be even harder to ask for help, and that's where Upstart comes in. Upstart-powered personal loans can help you pay high interest debt all online with simple and easy-to-understand payment terms. They've helped over 1.8 million customers on their path to financial freedom, so whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, Upstart can help you get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score alone. So rather than just looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. And you could check your rate in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So don't wait. Check your rate today at upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54 to check your rate today. And don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about my Helix mattress. It's the best mattress I've ever had, and it's the first mattress I've ever had that's actually made specific to my preferences. But now they've left the bedroom Helix has, and they started making sofas. They launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas we've ever seen. I've got one in my office, one in my apartment. And what makes them really cool is, first, they're easy to customize using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. And you could pick the fabric, and it's spill stain and scratch resistant. And I was able to match it with everything else I had going on in my apartment and in my office. These sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast free shipping, which is awesome, especially at this time with all these lagging supply chains and everything else. And you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. I can promise you that because I can't put together anything and I was able to put these things together. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54 and allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. 
the way you talk about your experience running for office in this book is is pretty different than the first book because I think you're more likely to say things about the sort of less glamorous aspects of running in ways that you might not have put it in the same way in the first book. Like you talk about the the pressures of fundraising and you admitted at one point in the book that you had kept in touch with the people from law school more than the people who you served with. And because they could write uh, campaign checks. Because yeah. they could write campaign checks. And I, I see this, you know, with Arena, I see people who I can see them doing the math as they meet people. Is this a $2,300 check? I don't know what the checks are anymore, but back back in the day, they were $2,300. Um, do you still do that from time to time? Do you have to like not like you know kind of like snap out of it? And you're like, wait a minute, I'm not I'm not running anymore. Like I can just see people as people. Here's yeah, here's how that plays out for me. Like I go to an event or something like a dinner where there's a lot. It's like a, a lot of high dollar donors or whatever there. And and for like a split second, there's a part of me that'll see somebody across the room and go, oh, I know who that is. I should probably get over there and make. And then I and then I have this like joy that overcomes me where I go. Oh shit! I don't have to do that. I like I. I think I'm just gonna hang out here and um like chill with my wife over here. Like I think I'm gonna. I, we're on a date. I'm going to enjoy the date. <laughs> and so yeah, it like it's this little muscle memory that kicks in, and then I get the the joy of of being like, nah, I don't gotta do that. One moment I always think about was a year. It was almost exactly a year ago. We were at uh, in Kansas City doing the live event. And you basically dragged me outside to meet everybody because, like, to me, I, anybody who knows me knows I'm, I'm an introvert with an extrovert skill set. So people are startled by how much I don't like to interact with people uh, in real life. And so you're the opposite. You're like, hey, let's go meet everybody. Right. And but, but then I was reading this book, and you're saying that part of what's going on is that this is part of uh, your the after effects of serving where you want to meet everybody and assess the threats. So I guess on behalf of our audience, I'm asking, <laughs> like, were you assessing the threat there in that event or were you past that at that point um, when we're at that event? You're never all the way past it. Um, you know, I guess the difference was before when I was running, it was probably 50-50, right? 50% of it was, I just knew that if you met everybody, the speech was going to go better and that I'm a people person and I, I draw my energy right. from other people and I like meeting everybody. Uh, and 50% of it was, I need to look everybody in the eye and assess the threat so that I feel comfortable getting up in front of this audience. And now it's maybe more like the other thing you asked me, maybe it's more like 90-10. And it's just with that, you know, that I think in that case, it was like, that was that little pocket uh, before um, the Omicron variant where we were able to have a public event. It was the first time in two years and I knew everybody was excited to be able to do it. And I just thought these people are coming to our show. Let's go meet them. Cause again, being an extrovert and frankly, sadistically, it was a little fun for me because you entered the pandemic as an introvert without like really any level of, you know, uh, notoriety beyond what you were comfortable with. And now we were exiting the pandemic and thanks to this podcast, you had fans. And frankly, I could see how um, uncomfortable you were. And it was kind of hilarious. <laughs> like yeah. it was, I'm, I'm guessing that's the first time people were like, I'm, I'm here to get a selfie with Ravi. Uh, well, yeah, people, people who know me really well do things like try to get me to hold their babies or to <laughs> hug them and things like that. Like there are certain things that if you know me well enough, you know how deeply uncomfortable it is for me. And meeting new people is definitely one of those things. So thanks for that. <laughs> you bet. There was this other just, you know, on the sort of raw campaigning moment. I forget the guy's name. 
uh, there was the guy who was rumored to be running for the secretary of state seats. And uh, there was a funny moment where you basically had to pretend that some law student was your campaign aide and you met in a Walmart parking lot yeah. so that he could he could like drive you to the this meeting. And I, I think this is like such an important moment of the book because I think a lot of people who see you see like this guy who's super friendly and like you you don't let people in on your competitive side that much. And I think this was like a moment where you meet with this guy and you basically tell him directly, like, this is what you're going to do. It was almost like an LBJ style meeting and you got what you needed. And I'm wondering, like, do you still get that? Like, because I feel like that's like your competitiveness, right? Like, do you still get that in the work you're doing and in the sports that you're playing? Or is that the thing as much as the fame or anything like that, the competition of it all that that you that you seek as much as anything else. So so to give people context, what that is, is it's I'm getting ready to run for Secretary of State. I've actually announced for Secretary of State and uh, another Democrat who is much better known than me, uh, who had told me that he was going to endorse me right away if I run for Secretary of State. Suddenly, it turns out is thinking he's going to run for Secretary of State and sort of bigfoot me out of the race. And I actually went back and forth a lot about whether to include that. And the reason I ultimately decided to include it was that it was important for, for people to see that I accessed anger as a way to control, my, as a way to get a sense, a feeling that I had control over the situation. And that there was always this low level simmering anger under, you know, under my emotions and that I channeled into a, a righteous indignation about our politics and about a sense of justice, but that sometimes it was just a righteous indignation that anybody would stand in the way of my political ascendance. Right. And, and, and that's what that was. It was, it was the story of how I geared myself up or really didn't have to gear myself up much to go into a meeting with that person and stare them down and make it really clear that I was willing to lose. I was willing to go through anything but they're not going to push me out of this and basically uh, scare them. Um, and I think, the, I guess the point is, I don't think the public's ever really seen that version of me. Uh, and in order to understand what was going on with me and what it looked like in my career, you kind of got to know what happened in that meeting. I don't come off well <laughs> in that, you know, but that's, but that's why it's not a typical memoir by a politician. I, there's plenty of points in the book where I don't, come off particularly well, but that's okay because I want people to understand what was going on. I mean, I'm still very competitive. Like, I mean, I'm 41 years old and I play competitive baseball, which I get hurt every week and I still do it. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I guess I just, it doesn't mix with the anger anymore. And I, and the other difference is, is now I don't measure my self-worth based on whether I won or lost, which is kind of all I had when I didn't like myself very much. Another element of the book that really surprised me was that, from my perspective, it really de-emphasized the portion of your life that probably most people started to figure out who you were or know about you on more of a national platform. And I suspect a lot of people who are going to pick up this book and read this book, as they should, are expecting more of the ramp up to making a presidential run. So I want to know why you chose to de-emphasize this or portray it in such a limited way as you did. I guess it's because 
you know, I suffered from undiagnosed and unknown to me and untreated PTSD. Well, I would say denied by me, but untreated PTSD for what, 11 years. And so that goes up to 2018. Well, people nationally really only figured out who I was in 2016. So it wasn't, I guess, so much that I de-emphasized it as much as, you know, it lasted two years. That part where I was like famous and pursuing the presidency more or less, uh, well, pursuing the presidency period, you know, and so I cover that period. But what I don't do is delve into it with a lot of detail on here's what it's like to, you know, I don't know, be backstage with Cory Booker before you both go out to give a speech where you both know you're getting ready. Like, yeah, I did all that stuff and everything. But like, you can read a lot of books about that. You know, um, I have, for instance, the one-on-one -on -one meeting I, ha I had with President Obama in there. The meeting was an hour and a half. I quote him one time, I think, in the book, because I quote him saying something to me that was pivotal in my own experience of, you know, the decisions I made and, and how it affected my mental health in terms of, you know, what he said to me was something that was about my talents as a politician. And in my head, I'm rebutting it, right? And so that was important. But I don't, I don't have an interest in like telling people what President Obama's views were on all sorts of things that they might like to hear. Because yeah, that's one way that a book can make news. That's how a political book makes news. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in explaining to people what it's like to have this this psychological disorder and be untreated because the book I, I'm, I wrote and that I wanted to write was the book that I wished I had had available to me 14 years ago because I think I would have gone and gotten treatment. And I don't care whether you're, you know, working at, I, I don't know, whether you're a middle manager somewhere, whether you're carrying letters on a postal route or whatever it is you're doing, if you've got trauma that's untreated, I want you to be able to relate to this book and not feel like, well, it's different. I'm not running for president or anything. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. This entire episode is about awareness of mental health and getting the kind of help that you need. And Jason talked about his journey, but I know all of you have your own stories to tell. And I know it's not easy to ask for help. Some of you live out in rural communities, or you might even be in a big city, but you're, you have some trepidation about walking into an office, or you're just not sure about the options you have, and you want to cast the widest possible net. And that's why I love BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you could be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's really important to get to that point where you're getting help as fast as possible and they make it as frictionless and fast as you possibly can find out there. And our listeners get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com slash M54. That's betterhelp.com slash M54. So I'm in upstate New York right now at tennis camp as any grown adult would be. And that means I'm playing like seven to eight hours of tennis a day. And you might be asking yourself, well, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. How am I going this long and staying healthy and active? And the, the main driver here is something called AG1 from Athletic Greens. Now, tons of people take some form of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body can actually absorb. And with AG1, you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. So if you're on the go and you don't have the time or the money to take a bunch of different things, AG1 is perfect for that. They support better sleep quality, mental clarity, alertness, and recovery. Honestly, you just put one scoop of water in the beginning of the day, you drink it, and that's it for the rest of the day. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You depict your therapy sessions in the book in, in detail. You like use transcripts from these sessions and respond to them. I want to know what that was like to go backwards in time to look at some of your earlier sessions and if you, in writing about it, also experienced different types of growth or understanding of yourself. Yeah, that was wild because, you know, uh, obviously therapy uh, – was huge for me. But what I wasn't doing at the time was thinking, well, I'm going to write about this. So I wasn't like leaving and taking all sorts of notes or whatever. All I had were when Nick, my therapist would go to his whiteboard and sketch things out for me uh, to help me understand my brain, the way it was working and interacting with my symptoms, I would take pictures of that. But it was because I wanted to be able to go home and like, you know, repeat it all to Diana to help her understand uh, because that was helpful to both of us. So I had those and that's all I had. And then I found out that you know, any patient at the VA can get access to all of their records at any time. So it was super easy. I just put in a request at the VA records center. I went up there and I got all of my therapist notes from all of our sessions, which really helped me go back and remember those sessions and then, you know, put them down on paper. And that was important to me because <clears throat> look, when, before I went to get help, I thought a few things that it turned out, thankfully were wrong. One of those things was, that uh, therapy was like, I don't know, going in and just getting an IV or something. And you sort of passive and you sit there and you talk and you listen and that's it. But that's not what it was for me at all. It was much more uh, akin to physical therapy. There was things I did that were difficult when I was in the sessions. And then I had homework in between the sessions. I had things I had to do every day before I came back in. And I wanted people to understand that because I think the more you can feel that you've been inside someone else's therapy session, the more, the more realistic it might seem for you to think, well, I can go and do that. You know, I understand what it is. It's less intimidating. It's less opaque. I think I can go do that. The other misconception I had beforehand for many, many years was that PTSD was like a terminal diagnosis, right? It was one of many reasons I didn't want to be diagnosed with PTSD. And I think this is true for a lot of people because I thought, oh, well, people who have PTSD, you know, they kill themselves. Or if not that, it's a terminal diagnosis from a career perspective because you can't get better enough to go on and people will stigmatize you. And I thought if I let people in and let them see what the treatment is like and let them go through the process with me and see me gradually getting better and accessing these parts of my brain that, that I had turned off for so long, then maybe they can visualize themselves doing that and they can see that, oh no, actually you're supposed to get better, which I had not known before. Historically, people who have acknowledged having mental health concerns have been pushed out of politics. I mean, the famous example is Thomas Eagleton and getting booted from the ticket in 72. But yet you leave open the idea of returning to political office, I would say, in the book. You don't totally slam shut that door. But I bet a lot of people would read this and assume that the door is being closed behind you with the publication of this book at all. Did you consider that in your desire to share as much as you do about your journey and your mental state? 
And ultimately, how did you come to peace with that decision? Yeah. And let's be real. Uh, this book might shut that door. <laughs> like, like, um, you know, it, it, one thing is for sure that if, if I run for president at some point, whoever, particularly a Republican, if I, if I'm the nominee, the Republican I run against would absolutely use the things I've said in this book to say, this guy is not mentally fit to be president. Absolutely. That's what they would. That's the argument that they will make, right? They'll say this guy's crazy and scary and you know, all that kind of thing. That's a fact. And it's because of this book, no doubt about it. So it's like, I want to be clear. It's possible that, that that's what's happened with this book. I don't think that it would preclude me from doing it. So yeah, I leave the door open because maybe I'll want to do that at some point. I don't want to now, but maybe I will. That said, so the decision was, is it therefore worth it uh, to, if I, do I think I can help people enough that it's worth it to do that? And the answer was, yeah. And, and for me, it was very similar to when I dropped out of the mayor's race and dropped out of public life to go get help you know, there were options of, I could have said, I mean, we talked about it at the time. I could have said, oh, I'm, I'm going to uh, focus more on let America vote right now because voter suppression is, is such a threat. I, you know, I've decided running for mayor is not the way. And then I could have just gone and gotten help and kind of disappeared for a while while I did that and had nobody know. But I decided at that time that with everything I'd been through, that if I could keep somebody else from going through that and get them to get help when they needed it, that that was worth it. And then with the book, it was, if I can write the book that I needed back, you know, 14 years ago now, well, then that's worth it. And that if that means that I, you know, again, develop the desire to run for office, but it turns out I can't win an office because of the things I've said about myself, that's okay. Because this is a greater contribution, I think, than anything I did when I was in office. And so that was, that was the calculation was, if, uh, if this is the biggest thing I do in public service, uh, I'm okay with that. One of the things that frustrates me about the current conversation we have more nationally around mental health is that it seems to really imply, even if not said explicitly, that people who grapple with mental health are have some sort of uh, predisposition to violence. And I feel I personally just feel like that that's very unfair. But I wonder if that is something that registers for you or if there are other m misconceptions around how we talk about mental health that continue to frustrate you. Yeah, it's hard because, um, you know, the part of the mental health conversation that I've experienced is one of trauma, right? And so I'm, I, I want to be careful to talk about it in terms of relating my experience, but like, I don't know what it's like to be bipolar. I don't know what it's like to, you know, I, there's so many things. I don't, I don't know what that's like. Um, but I guess from my perspective, what I wanted to get across is that, uh, whatever it is you think stereotypically about PTSD, for instance, or about, you know, mental health struggles that are a result of an experience of trauma, that kind of thing. Um, there's so much more to it than that. And that I went all these years with the symptoms of this, with dealing with it, with counseling other people to go get help for their own trauma and not being able to admit to myself that that's what was going on with me, which means we don't know enough about it. I mean, certainly the army didn't teach me jack about it. Um, and so as a result, like that's, that's what I wanted to relate. And I suppose for me, in terms of flying in the face of those stereotypes, to me, the most dangerous one is the one that sends this message to all of us that uh, you can't get better from trauma. Like that, like I had never heard the term post-traumatic growth until uh, I heard it in, in therapy. 
And now when I look around, there's virtually no depictions in fiction or nonfiction in our culture of people who have been through treatment and are in a phase of their life that is post-traumatic growth. All we see is what I call PTSD porn. It's all we see out there. And that's just like, you know, somebody robbing a bank, beating their spouse, uh, you know, using drugs, usually all in the same film. And, and so that's what we think PTSD is. That's what those of us with PTSD who haven't been treated for it yet think PTSD is. And so why would you go and like say, diagnose me with PTSD uh, when you think that's what PTSD is? So I wanted to make sure that I uh, could, you know, put a, a different image out there because I found out in therapy after I'd already started to get better. And I asked my therapist, how is it possible that I'm getting better when no, almost no one else does that I even have PTSD? And he, and, and, you know, this is in the book where he, he pulls out a bunch of studies and shows me actually the majority of people who commit to the program and do the homework, they do get better, but nobody knows it because nobody ever portrays that. And I thought if I can portray that and make more people understand that, then more people will go get better. Well, I think a big question for that I've always thought about with you and that I think a lot of people are asking right now about this book is there was this this part of the book that I, I almost laughed out loud when I was reading it. You said, I was jealous of people, the normal people, who could be happy doing a regular job, raising kids and diving into hobbies. And I didn't understand them, but I envied them all the same. Uh, and then you talked about how the truth was you wanted to be the person who wanted those things, but wasn't necessarily the person who wanted those things. But when I read that and then I compare that to where you are now, where you are actually living that life and seem to be happy, I'm left wondering, was your point in mentioning this that you have grown since that moment or that there's still a part of you where you're unsure if you're the guy who's living the regular life, uh, coaching baseball and... Uh, staying out of the, the the public spotlight and politics in that way. That's a great, it's a great way to ask that question. I think it's ninety percent that I've grown because I think it's ninety percent that that's that's who I am. You know what I mean? Um, there there are times. Sometimes it's like when I'm stressed about something. Sometimes it's stuff like the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan was going on, and it was just all consuming the news and consuming my thoughts. Or whatever it is, I can. There, there are moments where I, I do have doubts about whether I'm having the impact that I was meant to have and that kind of thing. But then I usually pretty quickly realize I'm having a much greater impact now on the world than I was when I was holding elected office. And then I sober up real quick when I think about, do I have that burning desire to go back into running for something right now if it means giving up what I have? And I don't. And the thing is, is that I've, I've gotten to a point where I can simplify it really well, where, you know, when somebody entertains or somebody dangles out there like an appointment or a, an election that they think I should run in or whatever, anytime it's put out there in a serious way, I pretty quickly bat it away by doing this exercise where I just think about it like anybody else would think about it, which is, does that sound better than the job I have now? And it doesn't. And that's the real journey of the book. The real victory of the book for me is becoming the person that I really wanted to be in the first place. And for a long time in my journey, I thought that that was in the White House. And it turns out, no, it's at my house in Kansas City with my family. Well, I just want to say thank you, Jason. Thank you for letting me read this a little earlier. 
than the rest of all the wonderful people who get a chance to read it and grow from it and learn from it. And thank you for being as vulnerable as you are in this. And I do agree with you that I, I think that this book will save people's lives and I think radically change how people think about PTSD. You know, typically, if I saw someone who had written two memoirs by the time they were 40, I would be like, Woo-hoo-hoo, that's an egomaniac. But <laughs> I really want you'd be, to you'd be half right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really want to emphasize that this book is so open and non-self-aggrandizing and thought-provoking. And if anyone else has hangups about memoirs or political memoirs or political stories or war stories, for that matter, this is really none and all of the above. And it surpasses those genres effortlessly. So I just can't recommend it enough. Well, it, it meant a lot to me that both of you uh, read the book uh, early on and gave me really great advice and great feedback about it, which helped me not only in the in the writing of the book, but also in the thinking about how to describe the book to others. Like it was super helpful in that. And, you know, for doing this, uh, I, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this special episode of Majority 54. Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD is out now. So make sure you pick up a copy at your local bookstore and tell Jason how much you love the book. You can find him at Jason Kander on Twitter and Instagram. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at Grace Lynch 8 on Twitter. And as always, our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by myself, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Cantor. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.